Welcome to part one of Health System CIO's podcast interview with Hal Wolf, CEO of HIMSS. In this segment, Wolf talks about the immense change the industry has undergone, particularly in the adoption of digital health. The weaknesses that were exposed during the pandemic, including supply chain proficiency, and the need to determine a clear strategy going forward. So where are you now? Are you in Chicago area now, Hal? No, I live in Colorado. I'm from Denver and up in the mountains, and I sort of split my time between the two. I've been here from the beginning, and when I was fortunate enough to join Kim's, that was one of those critical questions. Could I Mm -hmm. do this from Denver? And it's actually worked out quite well because prior to the pandemic, 60% of our organization was working from home anyway. We've always been very proactive in providing that type of infrastructure. Um, And so our ability to scale up to 100% from home was actually not a a significant leap for our IT department in our organization. So that's about the only thing that I would say was beneficial in in leading (laughs) to all of this. But I think we're all right Right, now trying to find little silver linings to go with this tragedy we've been in. Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that just really strikes me is how much care delivery has changed and really how this whole industry has transformed. And it it is a spot where there's certainly a silver lining in what we've seen with virtual health, but just wanted to kind of get your thoughts in general on how much things have transformed. Yeah, it's actually been significant. And I I know you've Mm -hmm. sort of recognized that looking at a couple of your, your past articles and seeing what's been transpiring and how people have been trying to, to deal with it. And this morning I was with a group of people from Milan, Italy, and, and they were the initial place, if you recall, that COVID-19 flared up and then shortly behind it was Seattle. And the change has been immense. We went from an encounter-based paradigm that many of us have worked very hard through the years to turn into a digital health environment, recognizing the challenge in healthcare that is coming, much less the consumer preference. And overnight, areas of resistance, if you would, which could have been anything from the culture of medical groups not wanting to go or regulatory challenges that have existed in the United States, as an example, or other places around the world, they crumbled out of necessity. And so we've we've seen this incredible acceleration in the use of digital health, whether it's emails, video, we've begun to see the components of home-based monitoring sneak in as well. And a lot of those have been done under different, how shall we put it, areas of opportunity, meaning that the government's looked up and said, we're going to give you a dispensation on geographic restrictions or patient at home as a site, right? Patient homes. Uh, But the real question is that as we pull away from the emergency declarations, what will that new normal look like? And I think you'll continue to see a a real pressure coming on for continued digital health, continued telehealth, if you would, depending on however you want to label it. It's inevitable because now the consumers have gotten hold of it. Systems have broken the coefficient of friction, if I go back to my physics days, and they've adopted it. And those that could scale up really, really big, they did. And those that weren't ready for it had to scale with something. And Mm -hmm. so now what we've seen is they've caught their breath and now they're going back into another wave. But just recently, all across the industry, 
and around the globe, people are now saying, okay, this is real. I have to do it. I am doing it. It needs to be a scale. And what are my strategies? And how do I make sure that the foundation, I threw a lot of stuff against the wall, the spaghetti theory, right? But now you got to take a step back and you really have to think through those dependencies and what we need to be successful. And that's where we're hearing a lot of systems reaching out to us and asking for support yeah. and looking at maturity models, et cetera. So I think that's probably in keeping with what you've heard and you can look at it yeah. statistically and, and we've seen it go from less than a half a percent all the way up to 20% of encounters being done this way. And it seems to be settling in right now around 6% nationally. It's the latest figures that I saw. I'm sure they'll go up and down, but bottom line is it's significantly more than it was before. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned was as we come away from kind of the emergency measures that were put into place, what do you think we're going to see as far as that? Or is it too early to tell just as far as, you know, the loosening of some of those restrictions? Yeah. Well, we've got a couple of, of areas that I think will be under a very strong pressure. And I'm, I'm not going to try and prognosticate what Congress will do. If I, if I was really good at that, I'd have a True. whole different career in front of me. But let's focus in on a few of these things that really need to be sustained. So we did make some changes in geographic restrictions where we're allowing telehealth to be used in areas outside of just rural areas. We were doing it now in cities. We reduce the number of days of engagement, reduce the reimbursement days from 14 down to two, but it sounds like they want to go back to 14. We were certainly advocating for at least a maximum of six from a Kim's point of view. The patient home as a service site is absolutely critical here, right? This is the ability for that reimbursement to take place with something generating from the home and the communication in that spot. And then we're also seeing, we saw, and we will continue to see a shift in scope of practice. Right? When physicians are now out of the stream of basic encounters and taking care of many of the very important but day-to-day -day routine things that they've always done, a lot of nurse practitioners and, and MAs and clinicians have been able to step up and fill that gap. And that's a shift mm -hmm. in scope practice. And that we have to do anyway. Right, We have yeah. significant gaps in the number of clinicians in this country and around the world. We have in globally right now around seven and a half to eight million unfilled positions from a clinical point of view. If you look at the WHO data, by 2035, that'll be up to almost 14. You look in the United States, you see there's a couple of numbers, but the lowest case number is 56,000. Highest is around 125,000 physicians retiring in the next 10 to 15 years, yeah. primary care. And so who's going to fill their place? Well, the answer is there isn't anyone right now because our medical schools are cranking out individuals less than 3% going into family care or primary care. Everything's specialty. So this gets into a change of practice that only digital health can fill in. And so when you get all of that pulled together and you start thinking about remote patient monitoring, we need to solve this problem. What is the reimbursement, right? Follow the money. We had a session and a CXO session of HIMSS last week. And we had 45 individuals, physician, clinical, IT leaders, executive leaders in the session. And we were talking about where are we going? What are we going to do? And there is ambiguity on how reimbursement will be managed moving forward. And that ambiguity is freezing up 
strategy plans on how to take advantage of full telehealth capabilities. The reimbursement schedules are going to force us to go backwards a little bit unless we can get the attention, of course, of HHS, its recommendations, yeah. CMS, and of course, congressional approval as well, all of which we're working on right now and getting ready to write some letters and, and, and continue those discussions. Yeah. When you look at, in general, how the industry responded, we've heard the stories about how quickly organizations were able to ramp up telehealth and things like that. But mm-hmm. is, is there anything that, that you as something that was uncovered as, okay, this is a area of opportunity across the industry? Oh, definitely. Let's start with our basics. So first of all, mm-hmm. following an individual who is now moving between different entities for their care. Gap in this country remains the fact that we simply do not have a national patient ID, right? Mm -hmm. So our ability to make sure that the person I'm talking to in one setting, and if I hand off to another setting, who is that person? Can I get a hold of their record? It's a safety concern, right? It reduces duplicate tests. So I think one of the biggest gaps that has popped up is the It's been a need for a long time, but in this pandemic, you know, national patient ID, that's important. Mm -hmm. Second, we saw the infrastructure from a population health standpoint really get under the weather. We've always had a gap. Kim's in particular pushed very, very hard and was a part of a number of organizations that was able to help secure $500 million in the CARES Act back in March, literally before Mm -hmm. the pandemic took over. And there's another $450 million in the House bill that went to the Senate. And we've got to hope that a compromise occurs. This is to be able to rebuild our back-end data environment. We lack reporting in this country. I mean, we all saw the CDC using the John Hopkins database to find out how many people were in the ICUs. I mean, that's scary, right? Yeah, it is. And from a long-term standpoint, we need federal, state, and local funding. It's just absolutely critical. And and in the end, you have to have what I like to refer to, Kate, as just-in-time information and data. I won't use the phrase real-time because from an IT standpoint, as you know, that's almost a myth. But (laughs) just-in-time, right? And we have immediate needs for the patient record. Every time someone walks into an ICU or a clinical setting, We have a short-term need from population health, such as pandemic information, where flare-ups occurring, and of course, long-term information for actuarial events and to understand where the population is moving in general. So that whole population health data environment has been critical for us. I think we saw some improvements in HIEs across the country. They were banding Mm -hmm. together and exchanging information faster than before. We saw an increase in analytic tools. That was a positive, but they need to get deeper and more robust. And then I think finally, we we saw some gaps in our ability to do robust testing and tracking, and we need to be able to do trace management. And then the one thing we don't talk about enough inside healthcare is our integrated supply chain. Mm. Once again, the supply chain is not just how many things do I have on a shelf in a closet, but how much it costs me. It's that, but it's also where did it come from? What is my secondary source? What are the quality controls that I need to have in my supply chain? And how do I match up the consumption of supplies against outcomes for quality control purposes? 
So these are things that we really saw that opened up. Nothing was as amazing as our frontline workers. Nothing is as amazing Mm -hmm. as what they have poured into it. But for goodness sake, let's give them some support. Let's give them a fight chance. It's amazing, Mm -hmm. but we've got to do a better job of supporting them. Yeah, a lot of good points there. And and going back to supply chain, do you think one of the challenges is the fact that in some organizations, it may fall under different titles, or um, do you think that that could be a factor or not necessarily? I think it's more just an issue of focus. We have never been terribly sophisticated in healthcare on our use of, of supply chain, right? You're beginning to see bundles of supply chain groups come together for group purchasing, et cetera. And there are definitely pockets. Let me give you an example. I'll give you two, a negative one and a positive one. The negative one is when we had to have a recall of breast implants. And when that happened, we didn't have good records as to which particular breast implants went into which individual. And it was difficult to go back and try to reconstruct. And that's a quality control issue, right? On the positive side, and I saw this, witnessed this myself in the organization I was with previously, we did a tremendous study on knee replacements. Now, why knee replacements? Well, knee replacements are really great. There was like a 98.5% versus a 97.5% approval of two different suppliers. 1% mm. made a big difference though when you're doing tens of thousands in a year. That's one way of, of marking it. And then the second is how do we think about our quality control around segmentation and the use of supplies? So a titanium knee might be fantastic for a 24-year-old, right? Who's a runner and they're going to be running the rest of their lives and they're great. But would you put a titanium knee in an 80-year-old when a high-grade plastic would be lighter, number one, and number two, give them incredible wear for what would be hopefully a very long but not necessarily pounding use of it um, for a very long and wonderful life, right? And and so we're learning how to use these levels of segmentations in supply chain. That's point one. Secondly, aggregating that information, not only in the U.S. and regionally, but around the globe will help identify where we have problems. If there's something in the supply chain that isn't doing well, And how do those alarms go off to get to faster recalls? And then, of course, all the barcoding and things that sit inside uh, the supply chain system that allows us to match them to the individuals, et cetera. So that's a level of sophistication. Retail's done it for years and years and years. They even do things on a consignment basis. So it's been 20 years, you know, where Gap figured out how to put a pair of jeans on a shelf. And Gap never actually owns those genes until the moment of sale, where it transfers from the manufacturer to Gap Mm. to the person buying it. And then immediately that night was an upload. This is 20 years ago. An upload of information back to the original wholesaler or manufacturer, letting them know that replacement was needed and what was in the warehouse and what they needed to do from a supply standpoint. That's (laughs) out there. And that's been going on forever, right? And right, in healthcare, right. we're just kind of going like, oh, yeah. And, and what we just <laughs> went through with our protective gear. Thank you for listening to this podcast from healthsystemcio.com. To hear other podcasts, visit our website or subscribe to our account in iTunes at healthsystemcio.com 
backslash podcast.